One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. So earlier this week, we learned of the tragic death of New York Times journalist Blake Hounshell. His family said in a statement, quote, It is with great sorrow that we have to inform you that Blake has suddenly died this morning after a long and courageous battle with depression, unquote. A GoFundMe has been set up for Blake's wife and his two children, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes. I spoke earlier this week on the program Counterpoints with Representative Rokana, and his reflections on Blake get at what made him different in the world of media. It was devastating and, and shocking. I mean, I had sat down... Uh, with Blake, actually, when my book came out, and we spent an hour and a half, two hours talking about philosophy, talking about economics. He was someone so well-read, so thoughtful, and he had texted me uh, in December saying, let's get together in the new year. Uh, just totally shocking. My, my my heart goes out to his family. He had children, uh, and uh, he was really one of the thinkers in journalism. Mm. Mm. Right, yeah, I, I, and I think that I think that's well said. He did stand apart. In, in that way. He did. I mean, he was at the New York Times, but he had also a little bit of an independence. Mm-hmm. He had his own newsletter. He'd do longer form pieces. It wasn't always for him about the news of the day. It was about ideas. He did this wonderful piece on Jamie Raskin during mm-hmm. the time where uh, Jamie uh, lost his son. And, and uh, of course, a, a deep irony there uh, with the struggles that uh, Jamie's son had. And it seems that Blake had. And in a wrenching coinciding of tragic events, it happens that 10 years ago this week, one of the leading lights of the internet in its formative decade of the 2000s, Aaron Swartz, committed suicide under the pressure of an overzealous and reckless prosecution by U.S. Attorney Carmen Ortiz and her deputy, Stephen Heyman. Aaron, even as a young teen, played a key role in defending and fighting for an open internet, creating some of its key infrastructure, and later in his life, he transitioned into more targeted political activism. If you're not familiar with him, his accomplishments in his short life are too great to list here, but I'd recommend the documentary The Internet's Own Boy, which you can find free on YouTube, which Aaron would appreciate. We also devoted several other segments to Aaron on CounterPoints this week, which you can also find free on YouTube. And today, we want to talk about what never gets talked about, suicide. And for that, I'm joined by Jason Cherkis, who's writing a book on suicide prevention and is the author of the groundbreaking article at HuffPost Highline titled, The Best Way to Save People from Suicide. Jason, welcome to Deconstructed. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I want to start out by what what we want to do in this conversation, but also what we don't want to do in this conversation, because, you know, while there is this, this incredible and promising research about ways that therapeutic interventions can reduce the incidence of suicide among people. We, we also don't want to suggest that anybody who does commit suicide, you know, necessarily could have had that prevented if only you had just done, you know, one thing differently, which I think is the thing that haunts so many family members for so long. You, you've talked to so many family members who have lost loved ones to suicide. How should people think about that as they're, as they're grieving? You know, one thing that jumped out at me is, you know, and, and this has happened, I know researchers who've lost loved ones to suicide. There was a suicide at off the roof of a psych building at a university uh, for a researcher that I cover, and they didn't even know about it. I mean, they were in the building when it happened. Um, so I think one of the things to draw from is, is 
suicide is very, very hard to predict. Um, there was a 2017 study that looked at all the studies on suicide and, and found out that we were really not much better than a coin flip in predicting who, who will die by suicide or make an attempt. There's been all kinds of work with AI and AI models or algorithms to, to better predict suicide. The military has one in use to this day at the, in the VA. That's pretty good, but the problem with those models is there's um, too many false positives. So for every, for every one, there's at least you know, uh, a, a great chance that um, it's an error. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so there's been a lot of hesitancy to, to, to use them. The thing that, uh, you know, that I c- come back to and others had come back to in terms of using those kinds of predictive models is, is that what do you do when you can predict that like in the next month, um, a person might have a greater chance of making a suicide attempt. The big criticism of the VA was they didn't really know what to do. And I think as a society, we still struggle with what to do and how to provide timely resources that are effective. One of the big problems with suicide is that our answer to it is a very cumbersome, very clunky, very um, kind of, in a way, outdated model. We we say, go to therapy or call a hotline. And I'll get to the hotline in a minute, but if you think about it, someone goes to therapy maybe once a week. It's pretty expensive, so it pretty lim- it pretty much limits you know how often you can go. Um, most uh, therapists uh, don't take insurance, so you have to uh, kind of bill your insurance company on your own, and that's really hard and cumbersome to do as well. But you go to therapy once a week, and and that's only six for sixty minutes. You're in the in the presence of a therapist, and you're opening up, and you're telling them something, or maybe you're not telling them anything, and Maybe you're afraid to open up that day. Maybe you didn't have enough to eat that day and you don't want to talk. All kinds of things can, be, can influence that. My point is, is that once you leave that, that office, the therapist and you don't really know what's going to happen. You could have a bad day. You could get, uh, you know, your wife could leave you. You could be unemployed. You could, you know, all kinds of things. Um, you could just get in a mood. People don't really mm-hmm. understand what brings on these kinds of moods as well. So suicide can hit you at any moment. All these kind of factors have to come in align. It's like a point in time when, when something like this happens. And, and so, you know, for a therapist to actually catch uh, somebody in a suicidal state or what they call a suicidal mode, it's almost impossible. It, it's so rare uh, for, for that to happen. Um, and so oftentimes in therapy, they'll do what, what's called exposure therapy. Well, they'll try to replicate Someone, someone's mood. They're, they'll amp up, amp up their mood to sort of agitation or or stress or anxiety to sort of almost replicate the ingredients that might lead to a suicidal feeling, a suicidal urge, and then work with them in session to sort of have them overcome those individual feelings. It's really hard to, and almost you know, impossible and and frankly probably unethical to induce a suicidal state in a person in real time. And I wanted to, you know, say off the top that, like, like you're saying, like, no, no particular intervention is guaranteed to stop any particular yeah. suicide, and nobody should, nobody should pretend otherwise. Nobody suggests otherwise. With that being said, if you look at a a macro level, there, we can learn some things about broadly what doesn't work and and broadly you know what has shown some effectiveness. And so, with that in mind, can you tell us a little bit about uh, J- Jerome Motto? Let's start in World War II. Well, I mean, like so many others of his generation, he was drafted into the army. Uh, he was in ROTC in high school, and he was a quiet kid. 
um, his goal in life was to become a concert piano player. And he was really studious and, and kind of nerdy. And when he joined up, he uh, ran a, a truck brigade. So he ran supplies to the front lines. He found himself in the midst of the Battle of the Bulge. And around that time, he was started receiving letters from a, a woman he had met when he was stationed uh, stateside. Uh, they had gone on like maybe a date or two, but they, you know, nothing really romantic happened. But so they wrote letters back and forth during the war. And the letters were very common, like, you know, they weren't really romantic. They were just like telling each other about their day. The woman would would kind of describe her town or sort of the activities that she had you know, going on that week and just kind of letting him know that she was thinking of him. At first, when he got the letters, he didn't even really quite remember her. But he gradually grew to have some affection for her, but also it made him feel good to get those letters. And years later, when he became a a psychiatrist and interested in suicide prevention, he thought about those letters. And he wondered, well, what if somebody who was feeling stress around or feeling suicidal and alone, what if they got one of those letters? Would that change change the outcome? Would that help them? And he wondered how he could do that. Like, what would be the ethical way of of doing this kind of experiment? Because he wasn't sure if it would work, but he also wanted to make sure that it was people who, who had rejected the system, who had rejected therapy. And so he started recruiting around in San Francisco in like five different locations or regions. Um, he had a research assistants stationed all over the city at different hospitals. And so when somebody who was suicidal had come in or had made an attempt, they would try to recruit them. And then they would be divided between people who got letters and people who didn't get letters. But in order to get the letter, you had to have rejected therapy rejected, you know, like left the hospital and said, I'm not doing anything. And how common is that? It's very common. It's as common as any. I mean, most people don't go to go into therapy right. after that. And so, you know, you have this, this system divided up where people who didn't, didn't get therapy uh, would get the letters or, or some would and some wouldn't. It was basically like a form letter, like a postcard. And on the postcard, it said, it's been a few weeks since we, we met. I've been thinking of you. Hope you're doing okay. Feel free to write if you want. That was based, that was the gist of the letter. And his research assistants who had met the individuals and enrolled them, they would write the letters. They would type, or the secretaries would type them up, and then the research assistants would sign them. And that was it. This went on for, for years, possibly a decade or more, when, you know, going through the recruitment, and then all the individuals that got letters got them for five years. And after five years, he realized that, in, at least in the first two years of getting the letters, when they were when the people were getting the most amount of letters because they were sort of staggered over time, they uh, didn't die by suicide. Their, their rates uh, dropped dramatically compared to the group that did not get the, the letters. And that's, that was the one, one of the few, if not, it was one of two studies that showed, a decrease in, uh, that showed a decrease in suicide deaths. Studies across the board, you mean, of yeah. all, inter- all yeah. types of interventions? And this includes all therapies. Any therapy right. that's been invented to address suicide has never shown a, um, a way to stop suicide deaths. So what did the therapeutic community, the therapeutic industry kind of take from that research? The problem was is that he wrote the uh, paper up in 1976 and he published it in the only journal uh, devoted to suicide research. It's called uh, Suicide and Life-Threatening Behavior. I'm not sure if it was called that at the time. They had changed his name multiple times. It had a circulation of like under a thousand. And so very few people read this paper. And I think among the people that read them kind of were in disbelief, just didn't believe 
that something this simple have this much of an impact. And so it was generally ignored. I mean, he went to conferences after conferences speaking about this. And he's a very eloquent, almost poetic figure. He's com- very compelling uh, person. And so, but people still were dismissive of this. And even later, years later, someone had sort of uh, revived the study. I would say the most influential suicide researcher of the last 50 years, Marshall Linehan, out in Seattle. And when she was coming up, she most famously um, had been in the mental health system. She had been a patient. She had been hospitalized for for over a year with uh, suicidal thoughts and self-harm behavior. And after she was released, she wanted to devote her life to suicide research. So it was a mission for her. And when I had interviewed her about Mato, she had said, I had read dozens and dozens of books and research papers, all telling me why people die by suicide or what compelled somebody to kill themselves. But I read nothing about what prevented them from doing it. And this was the first thing I ever saw where it showed that there was a way to stop people from, from harming themselves. And so she became very fascinated with Jerry, with Jerry Motto. And she reached out to him and she said, you got to publish another study. you got to go back and look at your data again and do it again. And so he republished the study in a kind of longer form in 2001. And that got a lot of attention. And then it got attention from around the world. So he would get emails from researchers in, in England and New Zealand and you know, Washington State and all over, asking him in kind of disbelief, tell me how you did it. There has to be some secret way, some kind of <laughs> trick that you pulled on everybody. And he would just say, no, I wrote these letters. And he would share examples of the letters with uh, the people that wrote them. And then gradually, people started to replicate his work around the world. My favorite study was done in, in Tehran with greeting cards, really, really ornate and sort of flowery greeting cards with like famous uh, uh, sayings or poems or quote famous quotes. Like one had a quote from, from John Kennedy, from President Kennedy. So it was like really interesting uh, work. And it all showed a reduction in symptoms or reduction in hospitalizations. A lot of the studies, if not all of them, could not show reduction in death because they did not last long enough. Suicide is such a rare, a rare occurrence that you needed the study to go, um, you know, for years to, in order to show that. But they did show reduction in symptoms and reduction in just, you know, hospitalizations. That actually reminds me a little bit about how much trouble they were having finding efficacy in the vaccine for COVID among young kids, because an actual like significant adverse COVID event was so, so rare mm-hmm. that it was really hard for the intervention then to sh- prove, you know, that something was, that it was intervening. So let me ask you about Ursula Whiteside. How common is her approach to, to therapy and, and how, how is she influenced by, by Motto? Well, she was mentored by, by Marshall Lenahan. And so she kind of came up as a student knowing his work, but kind of setting it aside. So when you're working in a lab, you're kind of in this sort of bubble, you know, as a student, you're not in the real world. And so she got to learn, you know, how to do this very complicated therapy, very intense therapy uh, for people who were suicidal through Marshall Anahan's work. And when she took an internship at a hospital, it was sort of this very, very harsh reality of like, you know, you got to move them through quick. There's not a lot of handholding. Uh, there's not a lot of, of services, not a lot of intervention. It's a pretty cold place because they just have too many patients they have to get through. And 
she would just she would see people that she had met, you know, in the emergency room who had made suicide attempts, very serious suicide attempts, and then be discharged in a few days. And she worried about them and wondered, I need to follow up with these guys. And she was talking to her, her therapist, and she realized in the session, hey, wait a minute, Jerry Motto, I could do Motto. I could just do that. And so she decided to incorporate what's, what's now called caring messages uh, into her practice. So she not only reached out to people that she had met in the hospital just to kind of check in on them, but when she started her private practice, she began texting uh, her patients uh, as needed or kind of randomly, you know, over the phone. So uh, somebody might have, you know, issues on a particular day, you know, or a particular time of day, and she would send them a text thinking of you. And that would be the whole text? Yeah, basically. Or, you know, because it's, you know, it's this sort of time where we're living in and it's text, they often came with like a funny gif or a mm-hmm. emoji, or a cat joke or something. And she worked really hard to figure out what people liked because she didn't want to make people mad, you know, oh, I don't like cats or whatever. Uh, and so it was this really kind of goofy stuff that sort of reflected her personality, but also it also implied a relationship that she had with her patients. It wasn't necessarily strictly doctor-patient. It was this relationship that she's trying to foster. One of the things that she talks about in others is that when you're suicidal, you have a hard time trusting others or building relationships because you don't want to talk about your suicidal thoughts. That might turn somebody away from you, or you might have gone through a, a lot of relationships and have been alone, and you might be alone. And so by doing these texting, these text messages, these caring messages, she's sort of fostering these relationships and teaching her clients how to trust other people and, and have these, these kinds of communications. And so it works in a number of different ways. One of her colleagues even makes or has her clients send caring messages to other people. So she'll say, I just sent you one. Now you, got, you have to send one to somebody else that you know in your, in your life to say, just text your uncle that you're thinking of them as a way to keep it going. And one of the more profound insights I took away from your piece was the way that Motto and others talked about, and Ursula talked about, not wanting to put an additional burden on people who were, who were going through these deep, deeply hard times. A burden so little as in, a, in the, some of the initial letters, correct me if I'm wrong, there was like sometimes a request from the hospital, say, hey, let us know how you're doing, which is obviously well-meaning, but then would leave people feeling like, oh, here's another thing that I'm failing at, like another obligation that I have to somebody who cares about me that I'm not fulfilling. And it would drive them in, it would drive them in fact deeper. And as somebody, I'm somebody who has like difficulty completing little tasks. I can do big things. Little things are a lot harder for me. And I can, I can actually get into a place where that just being asked to reply would be triggering in some ways. I I don't have the depressive tendencies that are going to send me in that direction, but I can picture it. How did they get to a place where they were able to relieve the burden and talk a little bit about the stamp too, that, that, that to me was, was a rather striking indication of what we're talking about. He sent, I think a a self-addressed envelope with the letter, but not a stamp because he did not want people to feel that extra burden. Like, Oh, they spent money on a stamp for me and I'm not going to write them back. 
I think he just wanted to make sure. I mean, this is a concept. I think it came from his, he was one of the earliest researchers that I can find that actually followed up on with suicidal people after they left the hospital and asked them what it was like. He studied the mental health system's care of suicidal people um, in, a, in, in ways that you know, people still to this day don't really do. And he also uh, spent a lot of time at the San Mateo, uh, California uh, suicide hotline. He sat with them and studied, studied with them for a long time because he wanted to know what it, what it was like to talk to individuals in crisis, to get an insight in how to talk to them and what they were going through. And I think he intuited from all of his, you know, his study of this that he didn't want to burden them. He wanted them to feel like a burden. That's one of the, the things that I think generally people view as a, as, a, um, as a risk factor for people who are suicidal, the feeling of being a burden. And so this was one thing he did not want to make them feel like, a burden to others. Or also the system makes a lot of demands on people and he just didn't want, he wanted them, he wanted the relationship to be free of demand and also to feel real. Like you don't make demands on friends. You have unconditional love and unconditional friendship. And that's what he wanted to sort of replicate. Yeah, his analysis of the system uh, was also one of those things that is on the one hand super obvious, but on the other hand seems to not make it into a lot of the kind of academic literature. In other words, when we think about you know treatments and interventions, we think exclusively about the time that you're spending you know inside the therapist's office or inside the the hospital or or whatever or whatever the intervention is but you don't think about everything around it that is necessary to get there all the paperwork all you know all the all the phone calls the bills the the getting getting punted from one office to another and he seemed to be able to kind of incorporate that and to understand that and as as you reported on it further um, what what's your sense of kind of what the kind of thicket of our system, what, what the effect of the thicket of our system is on people who are trying to kind of hack their way to help? I think two things. One that just jumps out is that what Dr. Whiteside and, and Jerome Mata both thought, both in sort of intuited, is that there was this whole large amount of space in which people weren't operating in the system. They weren't going to therapy. They were you know, in between sessions that they, where they could be in distress. And that these things, these kind of messages could address that kind of in-between time. But I think one example of how the system, sort of the thicket of the system, is a problem is that when they finally came around to sort of mainstreaming motto after my story came out and others, and you know there were other studies that came out later that kind of endorsed uh, motto, systems try to use it, try to do it. And often those, those come in the form of, hey, you missed your appointment, you really need to mm-hmm. call us and like make another appointment. So if you miss an appointment, you could get a fake caring letter, like a motto style letter, but in the form of, hey, you missed your appointment, we're worried about you, which is terrible. I uh, was with a, a source in, in Nashville and she showed me, uh, it could also form, come in the form of text messages or voicemails. And she showed me her phone and it had like 30 messages from her fucking provider and it was all reminding her to show up it's like this is carrying messages and it was just mm-hmm. like and we all get it now i mean you can't go to a 
a dentist without getting three, right. remind, three reminders, yes. and then and then afterwards a survey. How did we do? Right. That's the worry of all these researchers that I've talked to who who kind of study motto was that they were going to skip over the non-demanding part. That they were going to attach it to letters that remind people to show up for therapy or that you miss therapy. That it was going to essentially become spam, and in a lot of cases it has, and and that's a real problem. I mean, Dr. Whiteside is often worried about what others colleagues might say about her practice because, you know, she's texting, she's kind of personal, she's really kind of mixing it up in a way with her patients in a real kind of human way that I think therapists don't understand is important. And I think that that's an issue. It's like, if if what she's doing is a problem, then the system is a problem. And among all the people that I've interviewed who are, who have gone through suicide attempts and survived them or are suicidal and struggle... When I've asked them what has made the difference, it's often, it's often the people that they met along the way within the system that were rebelling against the system while they were there. That they were doing something they shouldn't have for this person. They were giving them extra time or extra attention. That they took them for a walk off, camp, off the grounds of the hospital. That during therapy, they said, let's go get a coffee. You know, let's, not, let's not be in this office. It was like the little moments that show that they were human beings, that that's what mattered most, not the sort of day-to-day grind of being in the system itself. It's funny you say that. I, I interviewed previously um, John Lubecki, uh, who was a, a veteran who had uh, attempted suicide multiple times. And he told a story of, of being at the VA and the official there telling him, look, you know, here's the, here's the wait limit. Here's the wait list. There's you know, really not a whole lot we can do. Um, and then when nobody's looking, the guy wrote down uh, a, an MDMA study that that he that he could be eligible for, and like wrote it down on a piece of paper and kind of like slipped it across the desk to him. It was completely legal for him to enter into this. It was a phase one or phase two clinical trial uh, relative to to MDMA, but he had to. The, but the the VA official really had to go around the rules to kind of let him know about it. And he ended up enrolling in it. He credits it with saving his life. He's now, he's now a lobbyist on behalf of um, MDMA for a veterans organization. So that's, it's interesting you say that because then it, that suggests that like, doesn't speak well of the system if you have to, if you're inside it and you have to be bucking it in order to yeah. provide help to people. It reminded me of this. I had talked to this emergency room doctor who has been working in the ER uh, for you know decades total veteran, well-respected in, in her practice. And she confided in me that she had suffered from suicidal thoughts and I think might, might have made an attempt. And she said, what does it say to you that I'm insisting on being off the record and being anonymous? What does it tell you about how the system would, would see me and my fear of what the system would do to me if they found out that I had made an attempt? Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You also wrote in your story that among kind of Western nations, the United States was alone in a, in, a, in a rising suicide rate. I'm curious how much that has to do with any unique American characteristics and how much it just has to do uh, with the prevalence of guns, which, you, you know, you write a lot about uh, suicide attempts that fail. And the problem with, you know, pervasive gun ownership is it's much harder to fail. Yeah. Whereas it's much it, with pills or other other approaches, you find people who are able to be saved, like the person that you write about at the very top of your story, for instance. Yeah. I mean, I think gun the pre- prevalence of guns is a huge factor. Also, the lack of universal uh, affordable health care is another factor. In the story, I go to uh, Switzerland, where they have a form of universal health care, where people who were in the hospital got, got sent to this, um, this relatively new intervention and it was pretty seamless. It was like kind of right down the street, right down the street mm-hmm. from the hospital. But there was sort of a seamless, you know, connection. None of the people that I had interviewed in Switzerland talked about the struggle to find a therapist. They didn't talk about the struggle to find healthcare. So that's an issue. I mean, that's that's part of this, the stress of this. I mean, when I, I recently took a job uh, working on the a suicide hotline. I wanted to know what that was like because it is the sort of main intervention for all people with suicide risk or people who are contemplating suicide. And I haven't been on the hotline for that long, but I was struck by how many people um, were calling asking, how do I find a therapist and where do I find one? Because it's just not well known. It's hard. It's harder to find a therapist or the mental health system is somehow more inscrutable than the, than the rest of the healthcare. And so I had a, a mother calling up asking about, you know, where can I find services for my son? Two mothers actually calling. I think that, that that's something that I um, that I had kept coming back to in my research for the book is families are often shut out of this. I mean, if you start from the beginning of, of care uh, with children who might exhibit suicidal thoughts or suicidal feelings, they're most likely going, they're in school. And the people that are there in school, like the counselors, or maybe if you're lucky, a social worker in school, that social worker is not really a social worker. They're probably on their way to becoming one, but most likely they have almost no experience in the field at all. They're there to get training. Schools often hire people fresh out of school or fresh out of college right away to handle the toughest cases, suicidal kids. And so from there, uh, it can only get worse. Um, schools are very much interested in liability and worried about <laughs> worried about liability and don't want to be sued. So often, counselors will, won't offer much because they want they might want the child to not be in school, not be in that school. You see that all the time. It's a very common, and very kind of horrifying practice that universities do. I recommend a great story in the Washington Post that William Wan did recently about Yale University uh, and their their practices of essentially evicting uh, students who have made suicide attempts. 
so you have this this kind of hot potato effect where no one really wants to treat you if you say that you're suicidal from the from the start of beginning in schools like middle school and high school through college and then it's pretty common for therapists once they know that you're suicidal to say I can't help you I'm not experienced with that or I don't want to help you so many people that I've interviewed have had their therapist quit on them or their psychiatrist quit on them when they're in the middle of a crisis I can't handle it and so I think one of the things we need to do what do you, is, what, do you what do you mean they just say this is too much for me. I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. This happens all the time. Yeah. Hmm. I had a one person I'm following, she she decided she was in a crisis and her psychiatrist said I can't do it. I'm done. Like and she was very much concerned about the medication she was taking. This person and and so there was an issue around whether she was taking the med- medications or not, but the psychiatrist bailed like pretty quickly. She just said I'm out. I'm not going to do it anymore. And when people ask you over the suicide hotline what services there are for them. Like, how can I find a therapist? Is that something the hotline is set up to help them navigate? Or are you just like, yeah. yeah. So how hard is that? There is. Um, it's not It's not that hard. I mean, the harder part is, 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 is the work afterwards. Like, so we have a database that we can pull from, uh, resources, you know, phone numbers, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And we could also direct them to, there's definitely some databases on Google, Psychology Today keeps keeps one. I don't know how up to date it is. I doubt it's very good. I doubt it's very up to date. But there's definitely key kind of search terms you can use. I always offer and tell people the best way to find a, a legitimate therapist is to say is to search for a, a therapist who is proficient in CBT because that is the gold standard therapy for all therapy. How often do you get calls from people who are figuratively on the ledge? I don't think it's that common, but I know from my from my my limited experience on the hotline right now. You've been I there since say, like December or so. Yeah, January. And, yeah, and so since December, and so I would say that at least once once a shift, someone's getting a call that the person there's a person who is in in real serious crisis. That's not to say that the crisis reaches the level of calling the police because that's very 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 rare. I would say that's discouraged at all cost. Um, and there's definitely callers who will say, don't call the police. I won't, don't do this to me. And I, you know, tend to honor the, I, I will honor that wish. Um, but I think that there are people that, that do call in, in real crisis. And then it's just a matter of, I've had a few people call who I felt were, were in real crisis. And I had one person call me and said, the first thing he said was, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. And then we just work from there, you know. Uh, and then we talked for, I think, over an hour, and it, it, he, he ended up being okay. But what do you say to them? Do you work them into small talk? Like, how do you get from a place of, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, to then hanging up in a better place? Well, I think one thing that we learned, and I think therapists like Dr. Whiteside a- a- emphasis as well, as well as the clinic I mentioned in the story in Switzerland, is that so often people that are suicidal are afraid to talk about it, nor are they asked to tell to talk about it. So... They're afraid to tell their therapist because they're worried about being hospitalized, being the, having the cops you know, show up at their door. And so, so, so this, the hotline provides a safe space for people to open up in a real way, in, an anonym, you know, in anonymity. And so the first thing you ask is, or you generally ask is, what brought you to the hotline and how, how can I help you? So you want them to tell you a story, a narrative of what led them there. 
And so often that can, and then from that story, you can start to ask follow-up questions, you know, kind of reflect back to them what they're saying, and then ask them, have you felt this way before? And very likely they have, and they've gotten out of it. And so you ask them, well, you know, the last time you had this, what did you do to get yourself out of this, this state? You know, very often people who are suicidal feel that there's no escape from their pain. That's something that we've heard, I hear all, all over and over again, this feeling of being entrapped, of feeling, in, feeling trapped. One researcher describes it as being in a house that's on fire. And that what's the quickest way to get out of a, you know, a house on fire? Mm-hmm. You jump out the window. And so what you're trying to do is provide them a safe alternative, a safe way out of the house. And out, you know, just show them that there's an escape route that they haven't thought of. And, and that's really, it's a very collaborative process. I think that most people, and we've, we learned this in our training, is you can't just offer them advice because it's usually bad. It's usually dumb, it's usually stupid. And so the advice that you want to give them is stuff that they've already thought of, that they've already done, right. and that works for them. Right. What about for the people who don't call? Is, is there any concern among researchers that the, that the kind of ubiquity of, of the hotline actually puts a burden on some people? I would say that's like one of the number one problems that, that all suicide researchers face, but also the mental health system face and has faced since the, since the beginning. Since hotline started, there was always the question of, are we really helping the people that need to be helped? There was a sense from the beginning, and I've interviewed the people that, first, that took the first calls in the 50s in America, and they were struck by the ambivalence of their callers, that people were on the fence about dying that they kind of needed a reason to live, and these calls were going to help them find that reason. And so the scary part about suicide is that most people that die by suicide probably don't call the hotline. A little bit more than 50% of people that die by suicide don't have a mental health diagnosis. So that means they've never been seen by a a mental health person. They've never been in the system at all. They never experienced therapy. They've never tried. They've just lived their life. They've tried to white-knuckle it until they couldn't. And very often, when they couldn't, there's a gun nearby. That is one of the other big problems, is just the, as you mentioned earlier, we both talked about and touched on a little bit, is just the access uh, uh, to guns. is just so high. I did a story last year uh, for The Guardian about the limits of virtual therapy. And I had uh, profiled a kid who had, a teenager who had died by suicide in Tennessee. And he had gotten virtual therapy you know, it was pretty limited in what he could do. He didn't even, there wasn't video, it was just on the phone. It was just like, it wasn't even in private. There was no real real privacy. And, um, you know, he had gotten, had felt really bad one day. And, you know, his parents thought the gun was locked away in a safe and it wasn't. And he found the gun and in a heartbreaking moment, he he killed himself. It feels like intuitively there would be a high prevalence of alcohol intersecting here too. Because if if you Mm -hmm. say that like everything has to kind of line up in the worst possible coincidence where, you know, you're at the depth of the feeling of being in a, in a burning house, uh, you have access to a weapon and you're super drunk. Like it just, it just feels like with your inhibitions lifted um, that, that might be, is that, is that when you're at the greatest risk? Alcohol is certainly, certainly an issue. Um, I would say it's definitely an accelerant to that fire in that house. Um, I, I, I'm not as familiar with the research on that, but I know 
that it's like a huge problem that when any research, any therapist has a person who is suicidal, but also has some kind of addiction, you know, whether it's opioid use disorder or alcoholism, it just makes it that much harder. It's, there's so, un, the, the reliability is not there, the reliability to, to sort of use the skills that they've learned to sort of tamp down those feelings are gone. That, as you mentioned, the inhibition is gone. Um, that's definitely been a factor in people that I've interviewed who have made suicide attempts. It's certainly an issue for people who are in recovery as well. Like when people who are at a really high risk are feeling really suicidal when they're coming off opioids, when they're in detox, uh, that's a huge, huge, um, huge scary kind of moment for people. For people who aren't therapists and also for people who don't have suicidal tendencies themselves, but, but know people close to them who do, what would you say to them from, from what you've gleaned from all the people you've spoken to from the hotline and from, and from the re- research? Okay, this is something that I've had to learn as well. And this is a great question. Um, when I was er- doing my research early on and talking to people who were, who were suicidal, I would always hesitate to use the word suicide. And I would be, fa- I would be afraid to ask them about it. Because I'm like, maybe I'm going to hurt, hurt them in some way or they're going to want to do it, you know, because I'm telling them about, I'm asking them about mm-hmm. it. And that's well, kind of the implication of putting the hotline on every story that involves suicide. It's, it's like the media feels like, okay, oh, okay, we said the word. Yeah. Now we're going to trigger people to do it. So yeah. Yeah. now there's we need no, to put the hotline. There's no evidence that saying the word suicide or asking a friend about suicide or if they're suicidal ever makes people suicidal. There was a study recently done by a great, uh, very young researcher up at Harvard who, as part of his study, had to ask people about their suicidality like dozens of times a day. And he was able to show that it did not not change their suicidality one bit. And so even when you're asking somebody 12 times a day, it doesn't really impact what they're going through. And so by just asking somebody if they're feeling that way, it's not going to hurt them. It's not going to plant the seed uh, in them. It's not going to make them, it's not going to encourage them to make an attempt or to die by suicide. What I would say, my advice is to be open with friends and to start having those conversations. But also, even if you have friends that you know are, are kind of in low places, just reach out to them and call them or ask them how they're doing so that, that you're thinking of them. And that should be enough. You don't have to have a deep conversation about suicide risk with your friends, but you could have just more introspective conversations with them or just reach out to people who are kind of on the edges of friendship, on the edges of your life. They may be going through some things and, and sort of recognize that there's these very little things that you can do that have a big, that have a potential to have a big impact, such as texting somebody just saying, Hey man, thought about you today. Hope you're doing okay. That's enough. Well, Jason, this is hard stuff and I'm glad you're doing it. And and I really appreciate you uh, taking time to, to join me here today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Well, that was Jason Cherkis and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. 
Roger Hodge is the Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.